What a remarkable testimony, eh? Where you just invite an individual to come to church with you and uh, one thing leads to another and a year later, the person is a Christian being baptized here and declaring his faith and allegiance to our Lord. What a remarkable testimony. We'd like to encourage you to invite your friends and loved ones to join you in a church service or a Christmas Eve service. You never know what the Lord will do in and through the lives of people. I'd like to pray, and then we will engage the Word of God together. So if you wouldn't mind bowing your head one more time with me, that'd be great. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you for the opportunity you give us to in- interact with your Word. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and those who are watching online. I pray, dear Lord, that your grace would be upon us as we look at your word. We pray that you would speak clearly. We pray that, Father, we would hear what you have to say to us today. Pray, Lord, that I would be clear in handling your word. And, Lord, I ask that you'd help us to be doers of your word, Lord, and not just hearers only. We commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you will want to go to Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. I will read the text uh, right up the front here, and then we will jump into the particulars of it. So this is Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. Hear the word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There ends the reading of God's word. So this has been a very interesting year, this year. We had uh, Queen Elizabeth, the monarch of Britain, and all the realms, the Commonwealth realms, she passed away. And of course, there was a lot of mourning. The world kind of stopped for a bit where a lot of people sent flowers and condolences to the royal family and to the British people for sure. Now, there was mixed reaction when, of of course, upon her passing, her son, Prince Charles, now King Charles III, when he was ascending now to the throne, it was automatic. Her death triggered him to ascend to become the king of Britain. And so there was mixed reaction to the ascension of King Charles III to the throne. There were those who rejoiced and those who were happy and those who wanted to to, to go to Buckingham Palace and they actually went there to say, God save the king, God save the king, and just got a glimpse of, of this new king. And many of them are now planning to make their way to London to witness the coronation of this man, who's now king of Britain and all the realms. His coronation will happen in May this coming 
year. And of course, while they are there, they are hoping to get a glimpse of the crown that will be sitting on his head. Why? Because this crown has been the centerpiece of coronations of British monarchs since 1661. So this is a historical moment. So there are those who are rejoicing because they want to be part of history. And then there are some Brits who are indifferent, where yes, the queen has passed away, yes, condolences to the royal family and to the nation, and, the, and Charles now is king, yeah, whatever, life goes on. I mean, I have to make ends meet. Our economy is tanking, and things are going haywire, and I'm ill, and I need to get a treatment, and our NHS, that is their healthcare system, is not working well. So, yeah, the king is ascending, but I, I don't really care. It wouldn't really change my, my, my day to day. And then there are those who were antagonists within Britain. Those who think, you know, why are we funding a system where these individuals now live a lavish lifestyle? Why are we paying all this money? Why are we being taxed to fund this royal thing that they're doing here? We are not really interested in any of it at all. And there are some in Britain who feel this way, and not just in Britain, some within the Commonwealth realm, those who will think that the British monarch is a symbol of the atrocities committed by Britain through the centuries. So they are not really fans at all. So now you see there are three different responses here. There are those who rejoice, there are those who are indifferent, and then there are antagonists who are in the midst of, of all of this. We will say similarly, similarly in Matthew chapter 2, the passage we have just read, we will see mixed reactions to the news of the birth of King Jesus. This mixed reaction, you will see there are those who are worshipers of him, that's the first point. Then you will see there are those who are indifferent to his birth, and then there are those who are antagonists. And they don't like, they're opposing this new king right out of the gate. So our three points where we'll hang our thoughts on, the three hooks that will hang our thoughts as we work through these texts will be the worshipers, the indifferent, and the antagonists. And my question to all of us as we walk through this three points is this. How will you and I respond to the birth of this king? How will you respond to the birth of this king? So point number one, the worshipers. I will bring your attention back to verse 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came where? To Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So there's a very clear man. This is a magi who show up. The Magi who show up. Now, who were they? Let's just have a conversation a little bit about who these Magi are. Now, this is a story that many of us have heard many times over. But there might be some details that you did not know. Maybe today, you'll learn something. Who were they? Well, they were wise men from the East. Now, we are not told by Matthew exactly where, but it is possible that they came from the area of Babylon, Persia. That's where they were from, and they were ancient people, an ancient group. They had been there a long time, and they were known a long time. They influenced, influenced history. They were astronomers, so they studied the stars. 
But they didn't just stop at studying the stars. They also practiced astrology, which meant they would look at the stars and then they try to interpret what's happening in the stars. How will that influence and affect human relationships and human behavior? So you will say there was a science and then there was superstition. The science being astronomy where they're learning, looking at the stars, and then... Um, Astrology, trying to figure out, okay, now how does that impact how we live? Maybe the stars are telling us something about the future. So this is what they did. Now, we want to remember that the nation of Israel also went to captivity in Babylon during the times. So, so they were taken there during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So if you're reading the book of Daniel, so they are still there 70 years while in captivity. Now, when the nation of Israel and the Jews were in Babylon, Historians believe that some of the wise men of Babylon also studied Judaism and the Jewish scriptures, and they were quite familiar with what the Jewish texts said. And so you'll see these wise men in the book of Daniel, you'll also see uh, references to the law of the Persians and the Medes, you will see this reference in the book of Esther, those are the wise men, those are the Magi. And as I said, they were very familiar with the Jewish, with the Jewish scriptures. Now, the scriptures will say what, what, would be, what we would consider the Old Testament. They will talk about, uh, many prophets will talk about how uh, there will be this period of world peace and prosperity that was to be instituted by a future Davidic king. The scriptures will talk about this. The prophets will prophesy, and they prophesied multiple times about this coming king, this coming king, and there'll be a period of peace. And so the wise men studying Judaism, they would have known that there will be this period where a king would emerge, and not only that. So, for example, the passage Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 will say, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So, in other words, there will be this star that will come out of Jacob, a scepter from Israel, which means there will be a ruler who will show up. So now what is interesting, according to our passage here, Matthew chapter 2, um, verse 2 here, where the Magi is saying, hey, where is this king who has been born? We saw his star. Interesting word. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So the question then is this. As we know the Christmas story, you know, we read it in front of our children. Sometimes we do little skits in church during Christmas Eve service. The question is, what kind of star was it? Because the behavior of this star is not how stars behave. Where they see it, they begin to follow. This star is kind of leading them. So they show up in Jerusalem. They're looking, they're looking. Then Herod tells them, um, go to Bethlehem. And when you get there, come and tell me that you found him. And so... As they're about to leave, this star shows up again and it's leading them to where Jesus was. This is not how stars behave. So what was going on there? A few plausible explanations here. Some theologians will say, now some will think, oh, it was a comet, a shooting star. Yeah, but how did it pause and then show up again? I'm eh, not sure. So some would say it was possible that it was an angel. Because again, in the scriptures, on multiple places, angels are sometimes referred to as stars. 
So it might have been a star, an angel that was sent by God. Because at the end of the day, remember, when they had met Jesus, they were warned by an angel not to go back to Herod, and so they go a different direction. So could it be that this same angel who warned them was this star? Maybe. We're not sure. Maybe. But another plausible explanation to this uh, star that they saw was the fact that Matthew mentions something interesting in Matthew 24 where he talks about there'll be tribulation and chaos at the end times and then the sun will be darkened, the moon, the stars, they will lose their light and it'll be all dark and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. The sign of the Son of Man will appear and then the Son of Man will appear. So what is this sign? What is this sign of the Son of Man to appear? What is it? We don't know. But Matthew, who wrote chapter 2 that we're looking at, in chapter 24, talks about this sign of the... So it, so it could be possible that the star that the Magi saw was this sign of the Son of Man. A divine sign, something that is outside of what we know as the regular stars, but actually led them to where Jesus was. Regardless, they saw the star, and they traveled to Jerusalem. Now, what is interesting is this, as we read the Christmas story and we also see Christmas cards and things like that, you would see three camels with three individuals seated on the camels and we think, oh, the Magi. And we see uh, kids doing skits of, of the nativity scene or we have this little nativity uh, things that we've bought at Costco or whatever, Home Depot. And you have this nativity set set up in your house and you probably have one already. And right at the corner there, there's these three guys with a camel that is crouched there and they have their little gifts. So we think, okay, the Magi were three individuals because they brought three gifts. Well... The Magi were not that. Remember, these were individuals who lived in front of kings. Their, 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 um, their wisdom and their counsel was sought after by royalty in the ancient times. They were wealthy individuals, well-learned individuals. And, so when they, and they were rich because these gifts they bring to Jesus are wealthy gifts. They're rich. And so when they traveled, man, they had all the gowns. And they had, like, when they showed up, everyone knew, wow, these are powerful people who are here. And they just didn't travel, the three of them. No, there were probably many. We are only told that they have three gifts, but it doesn't mean that there were three individuals. There were probably 15. And they traveled in huge entourage with an army to protect them because they were wealthy. And so they show up with their horses and their camels right into Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem knew. Why? Man, there is a group of people who are here, Persians. My word. And everyone is just standing in awe, eyes wide open. They didn't just come quietly. It was a huge entourage that showed up there and they're asking questions where is he who is born king of the Jews where is he we saw his star and everybody knows these guys they're astronomers they study the stars they are clever people their wisdom is sought by kings why are we here 
because we have come to worship him. Now what is interesting again, what you may not necessarily have known is the Magi were also kingmakers in Persia, where they were from possibly. In order for a Persian to be a king, the Persian had to be well acquainted with the science and the religious practices of the Magi. And not only that, after you're well acquainted with their science, astrology and astronomy, and you understand, and you know their religious practices well, and you have it nailed down, then you'd have to be brought in front of the Magi and make a case for yourself, and they would have to approve of you, and they would also have to crown you king before you were king. And they stood in front of multiple leaders, including King Xerxes, remember the story of Esther and the wise men who are around the king? Magi. Around Nebuchadnezzar? Magi. So their wisdom was sought after. And here they are now coming to Jerusalem asking for a king. That is very important because we'll come back to it a little bit later. They have come to worship this king. The point here is, the point here is the Magi had come to acknowledge the sovereign lordship of this newborn king. They had come to acknowledge the sovereign lordship of this newborn king and to pay homage to him. They had studied the scriptures. They were well aware. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were Jews. They believed in other religions as well. Judaism was one of them that they had studied the text and followed this star that God apparently put before them and led them to Jerusalem. They acknowledged the lordship of this newborn king and they had come to pay homage and to worship him. You see, one of the reasons why we celebrate Christmas, or before I tell you that, the reasons why we celebrate Christmas. Let me ask you a question. Why do you celebrate Christmas the way you do? Why do you and me, why do we celebrate Christmas the way we do? Oh, we exchange gifts. We decorate our houses. We decorate our church. Look at all these Christmas lights and all these Christmas trees around. Why do we celebrate Christmas the way we do. How would you answer this question to someone who has no idea what Christmas is about? What would you say? See, the reason we ought to celebrate Christmas was because we want to acknowledge the birth of a savior and a king. We acknowledge the birth of a savior and a king. We acknowledge him as the true sovereign over us. He's the true sovereign over us, and so we pay homage to him. We bow the knee, and we pledge allegiance to him. So Christmas each year is a reminder that we ought to bow the knee and pledge our allegiance before this king. It's not just about eating turkey and exchanging gifts and having a good old time with family and putting up with Uncle John because we all know Uncle John. They're a little crazy. No, it is time to, Christmas is time for us to acknowledge the birth of Christ, our Savior and King, to acknowledge him as the true sovereign over us, to pay homage and worship him, to bow the knee and acknowledge and pledge our allegiance. But you and I both know that not everyone does this, right? Not everyone 
worships this king. Not everyone pledges their allegiance. So what's going on? Like I said, there are those who worship. Point number two, there are those who are indifferent. Look at verse, six, verse four to six of our text. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They, these chief priests and all these scribes, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now let's stop there. Herod, upon seeing the Magi with their horses and their army and the pomp and everyone in the city, and they are beginning to ask people, where is this king who was born? Where is this king who was born? And people are pointing out, go to Herod because he's the king of the, maybe Herod has a son, so go and see Herod. So he's seeing all this happening. The Magi come before him. They stand. Yeah, we are here to see this king. We want to worship this King, so Herod is probably like, okay, you guys go have some dinner, whatever. Go, go take a break. I'll get back to you. He goes and calls all these chief priests and the scribes. Where are they? In Jerusalem. What is in Jerusalem? The temple. So in other words, you're talking about the religious elite of Judaism are there. It's almost like saying, if you want to know anything about Roman Catholicism, where would you go? To the Vatican. You will find the Pope there and all the cardinals there. You will find the leadership of the Catholic Church at the Vatican. So, you want to find the leadership of Judaism? Yeah, you will find them in Jerusalem. So, what does Herod do? He calls them all. Come. And he begins to inquire, where is the Christ? Interesting. This guy said, we are here to look for the newborn king of the Jews. And Herod puts one plus one together. Hmm, could they be referring to the Christ? So he knew the scriptures a little bit. Where would he be born? And so he brings all these scholars. Now what is interesting here is this. The scholars come. The scholars come and they begin to tell him exactly where the Christ would be born. These same scholars, the chief priests and the scribes who had seen the Magi, they had heard what the Magi had said. They heard him. They heard him say, yeah, we're looking for this Christ, this, this, this king of the Jews. We're looking for him. They go to Herod. Herod is asking, where is the Christ? Where will he be born? You would think, you would think that the, the religious leaders would want to do some investigation. You would think that they would now begin to find out what's going on here. Could this be the Messiah that Isaiah is pointing to? Could this be the ruler that Moses talks about in Numbers 24? Could this be the Savior Messiah that Ezekiel speaks about? They don't do anything. They're indifferent. No investigation. No going to Bethlehem. 
no searching for this new king. And yet, these were masters of the law. They had God's word in their hands. They knew the nation was waiting for a Messiah. They do nothing. They do nothing. You know, it's very easy for us to be indifferent, right? Very easy for you and I to be indifferent. A friend of mine, one time, I cannot remember exactly what was going on. I was younger at the time. And so we had heard this sermon on forgiveness, I'm thinking. And so after the sermon, after the, after the church service, so this is like a Tuesday. He and I were walking to some place. And so I was talking, I was very angry with another friend. I was just talking about how he should get it because I'm really mad. How could he do this to me? How could he do this to me? And my buddy looked at me and said, hey, Ezra, did you not hear the sermon on Sunday? What sermon? Yeah, the sermon that pastor talked about, about forgiveness. I said, yeah, but, but my case is different. Yeah, the case is always different. I sat there, listened to a sermon on forgiveness on a Sunday. On a Tuesday, I'm busy plotting how I'm going to revenge to a friend who had offended me in one way, shape, or form. Question, what happened there, Ezra? See how easy it is to be indifferent. It is so easy to be Indifferent, and our indifference shows up in so many ways. How many sermons have you heard on all sorts of things? Question, do those sermons lead to a life change for you? Do they? Or do we walk away and we say, man, that was a great sermon, but it doesn't change your Monday to Saturday, does it? Does it change your life? Does it change how you think? Does it change what you watch? Does it change how you love your neighbors? How you forgive your enemies? And how you love the Lord Jesus? Does it change the focus of your life? Does it? Does it change your prayer life? You see, the, we have the scriptures and the scriptures constantly tell us that God is good and God has a plan and a purpose for our lives and he loves us. And the scriptures continue to command us. We need to be a praying people. Question, do we? Or is our prayers just safe for dinner? A quick 15 second, same words you've said for years is what you say. And that is the sum total of your prayers. What about us reaching to our neighbors? Inviting people over like we just saw in the video. A few moments ago here, inviting people who don't know Christ to come to church with you and engaging in relationships that will lead to a clear articulation of the gospel. Do we go that far and be on mission as Christ has commanded us to? Or are we just reluctant? Is there any transformational impact from all the theology we sit under? from the pulpit here on a weekend, from the Bible studies we do, from community groups, anything? See how indifferent we are? And I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking to myself. Oh, being indifferent is so easy, so easy. How about we do this? Every weekend, 
when you come to church, regardless of who's preaching, how about you begin praying the moment the preacher starts preaching, begin praying, not for the preacher, but pray for yourself that the Spirit of God would open your mind and open your heart and soften the soil of your heart that the word preached will find soft soil in you. And you pray constantly throughout the entire sermon, Lord, help me to believe what is being said. Help me to live my life according to what is being taught here that I may not be indifferent. How about we do that? But that's not the only reaction. So you've seen there are those who rejoice, there are those who are indifferent, and then there are the antagonists. Verse three to four, when Herod the king heard this, heard the Magi saying, where is this king, this newborn king of the Jews? We've come all this way, we want to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and scribes and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, what is interesting here is Herod is troubled. In what way was he troubled? Was his trouble like, oh man, I wonder what's going on. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm troubled by this. Was it that kind of trouble? No, it was not. The word translated trouble here the Greek word translated trouble basically means he was agitated. He was literally and visibly shaking. He was in a panic, you would say. And the scriptures will say, and all Jerusalem with him. We'll get to that in just a bit. So why is he so agitated? Why is he pacing up and down? Why is he trembling in his boots? Because of multiple reasons. Like I said before, the Magi were known as kingmakers. And here they are saying how there is this newborn king of the Jews. So if they're saying there's a newborn king of the Jews, what is going on in Herod's mind is, am I being deposed as a king and will a new king be installed here? See, word has now gone to the streets. Now the people have heard this entourage, this rich people, this Magi, the people are hearing them say, there is a new king of the Jews who's been born, so why, where does that leave me? So will that crowd now turn against me because Herod was not a very favorable person here? I'll tell you about him in just a minute. So he's now all worried, will there be an uprising? And if there's an uprising, man, the Romans did not like any uprising. They came down with the iron fist and squashed it immediately. They would easily remove the king whom they have imposed there to govern. Herod was appointed by the Romans to be the governor, to be the king of the Jews. It is the Romans who put him there, but was he qualified? No, he wasn't qualified. What were some of the things he did? Now, of course, yes, he did a few good things. He funded some projects here, funded a few projects there, but he was someone who was full of himself, always in a panic, always feeling threatened. And anyone who would threaten his position as king, he would take out. So this guy 
killed three of his sons. Why? Because he had a hunch that they might want to come and take the seat of power from him. And so he had them hanged. And not just them, his wife as well. This is the same guy who a few verses later, after he sent the Magi to Bethlehem, the Magi don't come back to report to him. He knows that he's now being duped. What does he do? He orders the slaughter of all boys two years and younger. This is the guy. The slaughter of all these kids. What in the world is wrong with you? When he was about to die, he knew that he was going to die because he was ill, so he knew he was about to die. So what does he do? He orders his armies to arrest all the prominent people in the area, people who would have influence over other people. So he, he had all these individuals arrested on trumped-up charges, fake charges, and just thrown in prison, and he orders his military the day I die, when I die, make sure you slaughter all these people as well. Why? Because he knew he was so unpopular among the people. So if he died, no one will mourn him. But if he died and all the people were killed, there will be huge mourning throughout the city. Now people will be mourning and then visitors come. They, oh, Herod died. Oh, that's why people are crying. This is Herod. But what was the chief reason why he was troubled? Because this newborn king, because he's now being declared by the Magi is a newborn king, yeah, that means that Herod is not king. And this newborn king will have what? He will have demands that will have to be met. This newborn king now will inconvenience my life. I will lose all the prestige. I will lose all the privilege that I have. And Herod did not like that at all. New king in town, don't like it. You see, each of us, self-included, we have a little Herod in us. We have a little Herod in us. Why do I say this? Because we all want control. We want a measure of power and freedom. No one should tell me what to do, is what we like saying to ourselves sometimes. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me who I can love. No one can tell me where I can go. No one can tell me how to spend my money. No one will tell me what, what kind of um, friends I can have. No one will tell me what I should be in my life. Leave me alone. I can make my decisions myself. And the Lord Jesus is so good at coming into your life and telling you exactly what you should be. Jesus is this kind of guest who, have you had people who have visited, I'm sure all of you have had people who have come over to visit around Christmas or whatever, and so you're hosting this person, let's say you're hosting Ezra, and I come and I stay in your house, I'm this kind of guy who will now, oh, show me your house, so you're showing me your bedroom and I'm going through your drawer, what do you have in here? I'm looking, oh, what do you have? What is behind this closet here? Oh, man, you have old clothes here. Like, dude, can you just give some of these clothes away? Like, whoa, and what's under your bed? Have you had guests who do things like this? See, this is Jesus. He's not one to just stay in the living room and you show him where his room is and this is your bed and this is the shower you should, and you don't show him your master suite. Yeah, even if you don't show him the master, he will walk in and he'll open the drawers 
He will take your phone and see what you scroll and what you watch. He'll look at your messages and see whom you've been messaging and what you've been saying to them. He'll look at your TV, see the shows you're watching, your streaming services, the series you follow. And he'll make demands regarding that too. And yet, push back, we push back, we push back. I don't want you to tell me what to do. And we fight, and we fight, and we fight. You see, this newborn king, this newborn king whom we worship, will demand many things. Actually, John Piper writes a book called The 50 Things, What, what Jesus Demands of the World, What Jesus Demands of the World, it's 50 things. He's written a book on it. You can find it uh, at a Christian bookstore or online. I'll give you three of my own. The first, the, the, the three would be, he'll demand obedience, submission, and allegiance. So when I say he will demand obedience, listen to the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter five, verse 43 to 45. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Full stop. Question, who's your enemy? Do you love your enemy? How am I supposed to do that? Do you pray fervently for them? Earnestly for them? And yet Jesus will say, you have heard it say, love your enemy. I mean, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Ah, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is a demand that Jesus, it's a command. It's not a request, it's not a suggestion. In other words, what is Jesus after here? Unequal devotion. Do as I say. No questions asked. Not only that, he also will demand submission. Luke chapter 7, verse 23. It's a beatitude that Jesus gives. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What was Jesus referring to here? John the Baptist was having a crisis of faith. And so Jesus is doing all these remarkable things in um, Luke chapter 7, verse 1, all the way down to verse 23. Jesus is doing amazing things. John is in prison, so John is wondering, Lord, if you're out there doing amazing things, I have been preaching your gospel, and now I'm in prison. It is crummy here. It is not fun. So why don't you do something so that I can get released and join you in this mission? Jesus doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. John sends his disciples, go ask him, are you the Lord or should we wait for another? Jesus ignores the question, does all these healings, and then after he's done all these miraculous signs and preaching the gospel, he turns to John's disciples and tells them, uh, go tell John what you've seen and heard. Go tell him. The blind see, the lame walk, good news is being preached to the poor. Oh yeah, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, it is my plan, John, not yours. My agenda, not yours. And if my agenda is you die, yeah, you'll die. It's my agenda. But don't fall away, buddy. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. In other words, unyielding surrender. 
If the Lord wills for me to struggle all the days of my life, then Lord, so be it. Unyielding surrender. Finally, the Lord also demands allegiance. Look at Matthew 10, 37, 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh, just think about that. We love our families. And yet Jesus is saying, if you love your kids more, if you love your parents more, not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me, this means your suffering and your difficulty and your challenges. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So all your burdens, all your struggles, all your stress, yeah, put them on your back, follow Jesus. You don't do this, not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. If you're just chasing your own joy, yeah, you'll lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, oh, you'll find it. What is Jesus seeking? Unwavering allegiance. So, he's seeking obedience. Unequal devotion there. He's seeking submission. Unyielding surrender. He's seeking allegiance. Unwavering. Unwavering allegiance is what Jesus is seeking. So question, folks, how will you respond to this newborn king? How will you respond to the newborn king? Will you and I be antagonists, push against this king who will make all these demands, but I don't want you to tell me what to do. Are you going to push back? Are you going to be indifferent? Well, yeah, I know the new the king was born, yeah, but I'll just carry on in my life. Yeah, whatever. Or will you and I be true worshipers? Which are you? Which are you? My prayer is that we would be true worshipers, acknowledging the sovereign lordship of our Lord. And we acknowledge this in our submission in our obedience, and in our allegiance to him. May the Lord help us. May he help us to be true worshipers of this one true king. Let's pray. Father, how I pray that you would work the truth of your word into our hearts in this Christmas. May we acknowledge you as a true sovereign in the way we obey, in the way we submit, and in our allegiance to you. Grant us this grace, O oh Lord. Help us in the areas where we fail, in the areas where we push back. O oh Lord, I pray you'd grant us faith to have in you in these matters. We commit ourselves now to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.